my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Uh, One of the devotionals that I get um, on a daily basis comes from the Living Church. And there was one yesterday or the day before that really um, hit me, and I hit share on Facebook, as I want to do every once in a while. And uh, because it's truly, uh, it it reflected where I was. Um, This penitential season can get to be, um, to feel very heavy after a while. Uh, Lent seems long, and uh, we can get a little bit bowed down by this continual self-reflection and falling very far short um, uh, confession, I don't do those things that I ought to do um, during Lent uh, very well. So um, it's, it's, but the thing about that is, of course, is that it brings us to the recollection that we don't do anything very well, and that's why we need a savior. Uh, But it also said that at the the same time, as far as we are into this Lenten season, that we're also, there's the glimmer of hope of the joy of Easter that's just down the road, especially um, in my my neck of the woods, in in my ministry, um, we're already kind of starting to look at those liturgies that are Holy Week and Easter. So certainly there is that joy that's just around the corner. And uh, so we're still in that season of just uh, pulling back those things um, that have drawn us away from Christ, from the fullness of our relationship with Jesus. What are those things? And um, today's uh, gospel reading is one of those stories that just draws us into the middle of the narrative. Sometimes we get these narratives that we don't know all of the names of the characters within it and it's sketched out and and in our speed reading culture we kind of tend to go quickly. But this particular narrative, we have names, we have backgrounds, they're fully formed for us and we're invited in, in this particular story, to the scene, to be participants in there. And the question is, Who among that scene do we most identify with? Just to place it in its context, we're looking at six days before the Passover, which means six days before Jesus is betrayed, handed over, and crucified. And he's come to Bethany, which is about two miles outside of uh, Jerusalem, to the house of Martha. Now, Martha is one of three siblings. There's Martha, there's Mary, and there's Lazarus. It's not Lazarus's house, it's Martha's house, which is somewhat unusual in that culture that the male doesn't own the house. So maybe, um, who knows, she's the oldest, she's maybe widowed. We don't know. But what we do know is that it's Martha's house that Jesus and his disciples come to. And of course, it's not the first time that they've come and had fellowship and the hospitality of that home. 
So that's the context of this story. The disciples have come. It's also after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So there's been great celebration going on because these two sisters thought that their brother, possibly the younger of the three of them, had died and he's been raised to life, not resurrected life because resurrected life is the ongoing life and only Jesus has a resurrected body, but he's been resuscitated or brought back to life. He would eventually die again. And so uh, the situation is in this household, Martha is busy cooking and serving and uh, Lazarus is with the disciples um, at table and uh, with Judas who is one of the disciples still at this point in time. And Mary comes in with this pound of really expensive perfumed oil, lets down her hair, pours it on Jesus' feet, and washes his feet with her hair with this really expensive oil. So that's the context. Now let's look at each of these characters in the storyline. So first of all, Judas. We tend to kind of say, okay, Judas, he was the one that betrayed Jesus and, um, you know, put a cross underneath that, so to speak. Um, and he's, he's, we kind of discount him. Um, about, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, maybe even more, there was some thought that maybe Judas had done what he did in betraying Jesus because he wanted to hurry up the revolution, because he wanted to bring about the downfall of Rome, uh, to bring in the Messiah by sword. There's no, nothing in Scripture that actually gives us um, an idea that this is what he was about. What we read in here is, is that he was the one that held the common purse. Now, he's been a disciple since the beginning. How do we know that? We know that because in the Acts of the Apostles, after Judas has killed himself, and after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples realize in prayer that they need to make up the number of 11 back up to the twelve. Now, to make that 12th one, they're going to cast lots, but they're going to choose amongst the number who have been with Jesus all the time, and it says all the time in Acts, from the time that he was baptized in the Jordan until the ascension of Jesus. So somebody who had been with Jesus had, had seen the miracle, miraculous healings, had heard all of the teachings, had been there with all of the disciples. So Judas has been there all of this time for probably this, these, for these three years that Jesus' earthly ministry. So from the time of the baptism, he's heard God's voice saying, this is my son, the beloved. He's seen all of the miracles. He's heard all of Jesus' teachings. He would not have become a disciple if at the very beginning of his time of discipleship he was not a devoted follower of Jesus. 
but we see in Judas a steady decline from that original devotion. He has become disloyal. From devotion to disloyalty, something else has grabbed him. Something else has taken the place of that devotion, and it happens to be money. He's the holder of the common purse, but we hear in this reading that he's been pilfering out of it. Evidently, they wouldn't have let him go on being the holder of the common purse if they'd known at this point in time that that's what he's doing. They figured that out after the fact, that he's been taking out and lining his own pockets with the money that is being given for the ministry of Jesus and for the disciples. So his devotion has gone to disloyalty, to dishonesty, because he's taking this for his own gain. And then finally, for self-dishonesty, he's not even honest with himself at this point in time in this story, because in response to Mary's act, he said, she shouldn't have done that. She should have sold that because it's worth 300 denarii, which means that that could have been put in the common purse and given to the poor. Well, he had no intention of giving that to the poor because he's been stealing out of the common purse. And in fact, it goes from devotion to disloyalty to dishonesty in the community to dishonesty to himself, and the progression goes, of course, further down than that. We know that. And he loses all understanding of good and evil, and for 30 pieces of silver, again, money is the thread for Judas, he betrays Jesus. Of course, too late he realizes what he's done. But So this is Judas at this point in time in the story. In fact, such is uh, the other disciples' understanding of Judas that in that upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus and Judas has had this interchange, go and do what you are going to do, knowing Jesus, knowing that he's going out to betray him. But all of the rest of the disciples don't know that that's going on. Because he keeps the common purse, they think that Jesus has told him, it's what scripture tells us, they think that Jesus has told him to go out and get something else for the meal or to go out and give money to the poor. But indeed, he goes and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So that's the person of Judas. Who else is in this story? Well, Lazarus, of course, who has been brought back from the dead, he's sitting with the disciples. So at this point, maybe have gotten very used to the presence of Jesus. They still haven't completely twigged to the fact that he's been telling them that he is going to Jerusalem to die. They've heard the words, but don't truly understand what that means at this point in time. And they're sitting there, very used to being in the Messiah's presence, being used to being with Jesus, sitting at table. And so who else is there but Martha? And what's Martha doing? Martha's serving the meal. And we've met Martha before. Remember, we've met Martha in Luke's gospel, because once again, when Jesus was with Mary, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, um, 
Jesus has come in and he sat down as a rabbi does to teach. They don't stand in those days to teach. He's sitting. And Mary comes and sits at his feet. <laughs> and we can't even begin to imagine how countercultural that was in that day. The women's place was not to be taught. <coughs> Certainly not to be taught by a rabbi. Certainly not to sit at a rabbi's feet. I mean, she's done that on her own. Aghast. That's completely contra-social norms. Martha's busy in the kitchen. She's got her long to-do list. Okay, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I've got to prepare that. I've got to do this. I've got to bring that out. That's got to go in on that time. And Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And so Martha comes in and says, will you please tell my sister she's not supposed to be doing that and get her to come into the kitchen and help me. Now this isn't to say that being in the kitchen is a bad thing. Heavens above, if we didn't have people in the kitchen in this congregation, uh, we'd be in trouble because we love the fellowship. But it's at this particular point in time that Martha has her long control list of things that she has to get done and Mary has decided to sit and listen to Jesus. And Martha's pretty sure that Jesus, as a Jewish single male, is going to say, yes, absolutely, you're right. She really shouldn't be here. She should be doing the women's work in the kitchen. But he doesn't say that. He says, Mary has chosen the greater part, and it will not be taken away from her. How amazing that we have in that small story, Jesus' love for his children, male and female, that he wants all of us to sit at his feet and be fed by him and his word indeterminate of our gender, our age, or whatever. Come, she has chosen the greater part, and it will not be taken away from her. So here we come again, and and Martha is once again in the kitchen serving. And now, with great abandon, And in even more contravention of the social norms, Mary lets down her hair in the presence of single Jewish males. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. What a sign of devotion is Mary. But she doesn't care what anybody else thinks about her. She trusts this Lord. She trusts this Jesus. She trusts this rabbi. He's raised her brother from the dead. And she will worship him and give her life to him, surrendered to him in great obedience and devotion. And when Judah says, you shouldn't be doing that, Mary, she 
Jesus said, leave her alone. She has brought this really expensive perfumed oil to anoint my body for burial. Whether or not Mary knew that, she had put this aside. She must have saved up for this for a long time. This was a, this was a lot of money. How, how did she get the money? How did she get enough to purchase this? But she gave it all and she poured it out on his feet to wipe his travel-weary feet. And in doing so, showed such amazing devotion to the one who we know, who Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The one who will go to the cross out of love for each and every single one of us. So today, as we continue in this Lenten season of pulling back the layers of our lives and exposing those places that need to be relinquished to Jesus, where our life needs to be surrendered to him. Put yourself in that story. Put yourself in that room. Are you Judas, who has moved from devotion to disloyalty? Something else has taken first place in your life other than Jesus? Are you one of the disciples who have become so used to the presence of Jesus with you that it's kind of a ho-hum affair now? That you've forgotten how deeply he loves you and how amazing it is that he's called you to be one of his children. What an incredible blessing that is. Or you, Martha, needing to be in control in the kitchen with that long list of to-dos. Or are you Mary, who is sat at Jesus' feet, just wanting to learn from him, and who in absolute devotion gives abundantly, overwhelmingly, all financial, doesn't matter if she becomes a clown for Christ, if she's cast out socially, She's just devoted to him. Where, where are we in that room? Where are we with all of those characters? And maybe on some days we're one and on some days we're another. If you feel so called, please uh, pray with me these words from Richard Foster. Oh Lord, how do I let go when I'm so unsure of things. I'm unsure of your will, and I'm unsure of myself. That really isn't the problem at all, is it, Lord? The truth of the matter is I hate the very idea of letting go. 
I really want to be in control. No, I need to be in control. That's it, isn't it, Lord? I'm afraid to give up control, afraid of what might happen. Heal my fear, Lord. How good of you to reveal my blind spots, even in the midst of my stumbling attempts to pray and to abandon myself fully to you. Thank you. But now what do I do? How do I give up control? Jesus, please teach me the way of Mary, the way of abandonment, the way of devotion, the way of worship, the way of total relinquishment of all of myself to you. Let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of 